Hello and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details Podcast. I am your host, Sarah, and I've got a very special surprise tonight. Guess what, folks? Darcy's back! It's time to have a party in here! What do we got? What do we got? Say hi, Darcy! What is up? Oh my goodness. It was a very long time I was gone. So I'm super, super glad to be back. (laughs) And how are you feeling? Nice and energized and ready to kill this? I wouldn't say energized. I wouldn't. I couldn't tell you the last time I was energized. Um, I'm certainly feeling better. I'm, my stress level has gone way down. I took comps uh, just about a week ago. So um, that was the main reason so, I took a break so that I could study for that and get this degree. So I have completed does that. Does that mean school is done? No. God, no. Oh. Wah, wah. Yeah. <laughs> so my <laughs> my classes are finished, but now I have to do mm. like the research and the writing part. So, oh, yeah. So just another step in the direction, but it's a big step. So I'm really glad that it is over. Well, how, how much longer do you have then? <laughs> I'm hoping just another. I'm hoping to finish by the end of December of this year. Oh, vey, a whole nother year. I mean, that would be like that's pushing it. Like that, I would be like really working hard to finish in a year oh my goodness that is brutal we feel for you we're glad you could jump in here and do a couple of episodes and get back into the swing of things for a little bit i'm so ready you won't be too enormously swamped to be able to do some recording now Uh, so tell us what what are you drinking i heard some ice cubes in a glass and i'm assuming you've got some kind of delicious beverage i am drinking bourbon i'm back in my bourbon ways Ah. uh i'm drinking a nice glass of larceny bourbon i won it at my friend um jana's family they do like a big christmas eve thing and we just called dirty santa start doing like a (laughs) dirty santa with alcohol for all the adults and so um yeah you know you know like how you like sit around in a group and like pick a gift and you can steal the gift or whatever i think some people call it like white elephant secret oh no 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 white elephant you're right it's white elephant why not? Yeah. So we, we we always called it Dirty Santa. So like you can steal whatever. So I ended up with a yeah. super solid bottle of whiskey. So I'm drinking some Larceny. Uh, nice. Yeah. I'm pretty jazzed about it. It's delicious. I've First time I've drank in <laughs> so long. <laughs> Holy so. moly. Well, I've got my stereotypical cheap glass of, I think this time I have Cook's Champagne. All right. So I got the mega bottle. Yeah. Oh, nice. <laughs> Mike's out of town, so yeah. I'm like on my own, and I'm like, why not just booze it up the Hell whole yeah. time he's gone? But um, one thing that we're really into lately, like both of us, a super duper lot, is peanut butter whiskey. Okay, I saw you post about this on your Instagram, and I was oh very my confused. god, what is peanut butter whiskey? It is so freaking delicious. You got to try it. It's the 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 one brand that you want to use is Screwball. Don't Screw try any of the imitation ones. It has a little sheep on the front of the label, and it is the best. Where did this come from? How long has this been around? I've never heard of it. It's only been around for a few years. It's a local couple, I believe, in California that created it. And it legit tastes straight up like peanut butter. It's a delicious, delicious thing. If you get the, you know, generic off-brands, they taste like diesel fuel mixed mm. with peanut butter. So don't do that. But the Screwball whiskey, oh my God, it's still, it's like a dessert. Can, can you get it everywhere? It all night long. Usually, yeah. Huh. You can get it at like Vons or like any one of the local liquor stores. 
It is so good. I'm about to look. It's for probably it. about twenty five bucks a bottle. Okay. And it's like it's the most delicious thing ever. And you can mix it with different things and make all these really super delicious peanut butter drinks. It's it's whack out delicious. Huh. Like I can't even tell you how good it is. I'm gonna see if I can find it because you know where I live, you can't buy liquor in the grocery store. You have to go to a very specific liquor store. Um, yes. Because of Jesus. So uh, I'll have to look for that next time well, I go. I mean, Washington State is the same way. Like, yeah. you have to go to a liquor store to buy the booze. I don't know if it's the same now. You can correct me if I'm wrong, listeners that are out there listening to this. But, yeah, you had to go to a specific state-owned liquor store yeah. in order to get booze in Washington State. And it was only open until, like, 6 o'clock at night. And it was only open Monday through Friday. Right. And, like, just craziness. So. Yeah. Um, I'm glad that we're able to do something different here. But in any case, we both got our booze. We're ready to go. Um, we've got a very interesting main case that we're going to talk about today. But I'm going to start it out with a badass case that I saw not too long ago. And I saw this. Actually, I was scrolling through some news articles. And it originally came out on Good Morning America. The title of the article is Couple Who Helped Police Rescue Kidnapped Girls Speaks Out. We just had a gut feeling. So oh, I read get this. this. Morgan Windsor wrote this article, but it's basically Benny Correa and his wife, Amanda, were driving home from dinner with their family. This was like a couple weeks ago, I think, when they spotted a familiar looking car on the road near their home in Massachusetts. And this was a dark blue Honda Civic with tinted windows and very distinctive wheel rims that crossed in front of their car. And the couple was checking it out. And at first, you know, the, the they didn't really think that much of it, but then they recognized that this was the vehicle that the authorities were searching for in the abduction of an 11-year-old girl named Charlotte Moshia. And evidently, a knife-wielding dude had grabbed the girl and forced her into his car earlier that day, just after she got off the school bus in Springfield, about 30 miles west of Brimfield. And the couple just had this super gut feeling and they were like, we have to follow this car. So they called 911 and double checked the photo of the suspect's vehicle that was released by the Massachusetts State Police and then took off after this car with their five kids in the freaking minivan with them. But they freaking got in their minivan with their freaking five kids in the car and followed this dude. And the, the parents say it was just like kind of one of those fight or flight sort of things that just kicked in. And they were like, they knew they had to help this girl. But the suspect's vehicle started like speeding up super fast and they like put the pedal to the metal and like raced it, oh even gosh. running a red light in efforts to get this guy and to read the license plate. All the while, the wife is on the phone with 911 while the husband is chasing this car down and they're like cutting people off and trying to get up close to the car. And they they're basically like, we have to do this. It's our responsibility. It's our civic duty. But evidently, they slowed down and looked both ways as they ran the red light to ensure they didn't get hit by other cars. So it was like safety for our babies in the car. They would never put their kids' lives in danger, they said. But they were eventually able to read the license plate and they reported to the 911 dispatcher on the phone what it was. And they also saw someone getting pushed down under the back seat as the suspect's car passed under a street lamp. So he clearly had this girl in the yeah. car. They ultimately ended their pursuit when they ran out of gas. But police, by that point, police had got the license plate and knew where the car was and were sufficiently able to get in there and spring into action. They used road construction sites along the Massachusetts Turnpike to funnel traffic into one lane. Mm. They slowed traffic down to a crawl. But then they spotted the suspect's car, stopped the vehicle, and found this young girl in the back seat. 
This man who had kidnapped her was 24-year-old 24, 24 Miguel Rodriguez, who was in the driver's seat, and he had a knife visible in the pocket of the door when they stopped the car. They got this poor girl out safely, and they removed this guy at gunpoint, but... The girl told troopers on scene that Rodriguez had pointed a knife at her and told her that if she screamed or tried to escape, he'd kill her. And she was taken to a local hospital for precautionary evaluation. But this was like such quick, quick thinking on the part of these family that was in their minivan and just happened to have recognized. These are like crime sleuths. Like they're jazzed up. They're like, we need to help. We need to do everything we can. And they helped make that rescue possible, according to Massachusetts State Police. But what do you think about that? I mean, would you do something like that? Not if I had kids in the car. I mean, that's that's wild. I, I applaud them because everything turned out well. But that's scary. Run, you're talking about running red lights. You're talking about a person that's driving erratically with other traffic around. It, it, it was nighttime, right? They just love dinner. So it's dark. Yeah. I mean, there's just a lot of things that can go wrong in that situation. I'm glad it was able to work out. But like, I don't know. I feel like call the cops and follow as closely as you can safely. But like if they run a red light, I'm probably not running a red light. You know what I mean? Like I'm yeah. trying to give the police as much information as possible. But if I have five kids in the car, like that's crazy. That could have ended so badly. Yeah. yeah. It really could have. And I think, you know, as a whole, we don't want to, as a whole, we don't want to encourage people to get involved in that kind of a way because that man could have had a gun. Right. He could have shot at them. He could have killed the girl in the car because he could have been like, screw it. I, I don't have anything to lose now because they, they found me and they know where I am. Right. So he could have killed that young girl. He could have gotten into an accident himself and killed himself and other people. And the minivan that was following him could have gotten into an accident and injured other people. So you just never know. You really have to use your best judgment in situations like that. If it is safe to pursue, then, and you feel as though you can make a difference, then I would say go for it. But if it's at all unsafe and you, there's like, there's so many unknown factors. Yeah. It's really hard to say, go for it. Go, go chase this dude down. Well, and you're not doing anybody any good if you get hurt or hurt somebody else while you're trying to do this because that's that's ultimately yeah. going to slow down the pursuit because then people have to stop and and get emergency services to you so right there's just i mean call law enforcement i mean basically it's just yeah. what it comes down to for me like call law enforcement that's what they're they're doing like they that is their job is to pursue um people like that so and God forbid there should be some any kind of confusion with respect to you being involved in the actual crime right. and start chasing you. So, like, that's an, yet another thing to possibly be concerned about and to consider when you're doing something like that. Because not everyone's necessarily going to be on the same page when they're in hot pursuit of a vehicle that has, obviously, passengers inside that have broken the law. So, right. we got to be careful. I applaud them for getting involved and for helping chase this guy down. But on the other hand, like I would encourage other people in similar circumstances to use extreme caution. Yeah. Like I'm glad it worked out and everybody was safe, but that's a very dangerous situation to put yourself in, put yourself and your family in. Yeah. So anyway, um, interesting case. And I, when I read it, I was like, 
I was cheering for them because I was like, yeah, go get it. Get those bastards. Get him or whatever. But then after I read the article, I was like, oh, yeah, wow, that could have been that could have ended really bad. Yeah. But anyway, um, let's jump into the main case for today. And this one popped up on our radar because there have been some recent developments in this case, as in the sentencing of the man involved in this just happened this month. So, Darcy, why don't you dive into the case for today? Yeah, so we are going to be talking about the McStay family. And this is one I saw and I texted Sarah and I was like, hey, you know, have you covered this during, during my absence? Because it was one I had been following since I was in San Diego. So I rem- remember I wasn't out there when it happened, but I remember like I saw um, an episode of Disappeared on the Investigation Discovery channel, which was one of my all time favorite shows on Investigation Discovery. And I kind of had always kept up with this case since then. So I remember the case. I was living here in San Diego when it happened. I remember hearing about it. I remember 99% of the people down here in San Diego thought that this family just ran away and went to Mexico. No one initially suspected that there was any sort of foul play involved in this. But I mean, it was scary. I remember very vividly hearing the news reports and hearing people talking about this case as it happened. Right. So... We'll go ahead and get into the whole story. So Joseph McStay, he was 40. His wife, Summer, was 43. And their two sons, Gianni, who was four, and Joseph Jr., who was three, lived in Fallbrook, which is in East San Diego County. So that's kind of why it both, it strikes a chord with both Sarah and I is because this was in San Diego. And so it's about 45 minutes uh, north of the city of San Diego proper. And it's about, I would say, 20 minutes from where I live now. So it's super close. Yeah, and yeah, and this is for sure like East County, San Diego. It's Northeast County. Yes. So Joseph was the owner of Earth Inspired Products, which was a company that built custom fountains. And these were like expensive in the tens of thousands of dollars fountains that people would like put out in front of their house. So this was a big business in terms of, I guess, turn uh in terms of like capital and things like that. Like they were doing well, right? So Sarah was a licensed real estate agent and they had uh, recently summer. Yes. I actually have you Sarah said- in here in my script. <laughs> that is crazy. <laughs> I, must have I know you're thinking me. about me and I know I'm on your mind a lot, but like you gotta, <laughs> gotta keep yeah, control of so yourself over there. Summer was a licensed real estate agent, not Sarah. So they had recently moved into a new house that they were renovating in Fallbrook, like I said, and this was in 2010. So in yeah, so on February 9th, when some employees of Joseph's had not heard from them in about five days, they sent a, they sent somebody out to the house to check on the family. And when the coworker got there, they didn't find anybody at home, but they did find that the two dogs were outside and they had food in their bowls. So this person just assumed that the family had gone out of town and they had made arrangements for somebody to come over and take care of the dogs, right? So the, the, the coworker kind of just leaves. A couple days later, on February 13th, Joseph's brother went to the house again because they had not heard from them. And he actually went into the house because he had found that a window was left partially open around the back. So remember, the family had only recently moved into the house in the last few months. So there wasn't a whole lot of furniture and they were renovating. So it was like a lot of boxes. And it was kind of it wasn't like a settled house. Right. So it was hard to tell if anything had happened at the house because the house wasn't settled. It wasn't like you could look at it and say like, oh, this isn't supposed to be here. or This is a mess or whatever like that. So, right. Um, so Joseph's brother didn't see anything particularly un- unusual, but he did leave a note on the kitchen counter for whoever was feeding the dogs to give him a call because he was concerned about his family. And later that night, 
So he also saw um, the reason that he thought it was a little bit unusual is there were eggs on the counter and there was popcorn sitting on the couch. So he's like, it didn't look like somebody was had left unless they were in like a real hurry. Uh, yeah. So I was going to get to that in just a second. So that later that same night on the 13th, he did get a phone call from animal control because they were about to take the dogs because they had been reported that the dogs were left outside without food for over a week. Apparently, somebody from animal control had come by the house and they had fed the dogs during this time. Oh. So that is why it looked like the dogs were being taken care of. But it was actually animal control. So I wonder if they were barking and just making a lot of noise or if just one of the neighbors happened to see him and, and not seen the couple. I wonder how that played I th- out. I don't know if they were barking, but I do think it was a neighbor that kind of called the animal control and said, like, this family's not here and they've left their dogs. Can somebody come do something? I don't know if it was like a disruption or what, but I do think it was a neighbor that called. Yeah. So thank goodness for that. Yeah. Nosy neighbors do come in handy on occasion. What is it? The one from Bewitched? The one that was always oh, under yeah. the, the window. <laughs> that, anyway. A nosy old lady. So his brother reported the family missing on February 15th. And when San Diego County Sheriff's Department came to the house, they executed a search warrant on February 19th. They did not find any indications of foul play, but it did look like the family had left the house in a hurry. Like Sarah said, there was a carton of eggs sitting on the kitchen counter, and there were two bowls of popcorn that were sitting on the sofa. So... That kind of made it look like whatever, wherever this family went, it wasn't like it was a planned thing. They didn't pack up and leave, right? So, um, so during the investigation, it was discovered from a neighbor's security camera that the McStay family car had left their house on February 4th. So this was then considered the official date of their disappearance. Now, remember, nobody had heard from them since about that time, and they sent somebody out to the house for the first time on the 9th. So... But keep in mind as well, it was only about 18 inches of the car that they saw on the camera. You couldn't see anybody driving the car. You just saw the car kind of leave the driveway and then turn, and it didn't show where it went on this video. That was approximately 7.47 p.m. that the video camera picked that up. Yeah. And so the last known phone call from Joseph's cell phone was placed around 8.30 that night on the same night of February 4th to Joseph's business partner, Chase Merritt, who lived up in Rancho Cucamonda. Merritt reported that he actually let the call go to voicemail because he was watching a movie and the cell phone evidence indicated that the phone pinged off of a tower in Fallbrook. So Hmm. wherever they left, they were still in the same area, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So that or the phone was. The phone, correct. When the phone call was made. The phone was in Fallbrook. That's the best way to say that. So during the search of the house, they also discovered that somebody at the house had searched about.com for what documents children need to travel to Mexico. And also they were looking up Spanish lessons. Hmm. And it was also discovered that the McStay family car had been towed from the San Ysidro outlet mall around 11 p.m. on February 8th after it had it had been left unattended. So San Isidro is like an hour and a half south of Fallbrook. It's in San Diego County. It's right down there on the, on the San Diego, on the U.S.-Mexico border. But it's a distance from Fallbrook. So it's not like they just went to the mall. Like you would have to go yeah. specifically to the outlet mall at San Isidro. Security guards told the police that the car had only been parked at the mall earlier that same evening between 530 and 7. So on February 23rd, Investigate San Diego, San, San Diego County investigators notified Interpol to be on the lookout for the family who they now believe voluntarily traveled to Mexico. 
I'm kind of telling the story in order of the information that was released publicly, but we're Mm going to go back here for a second because on March 5th, investigators released a video of a group of four people similar to the McStays. So you had a man, a woman, and two children about the size of Gianni and Joseph Jr. crossing the border into Mexico through the pedestrian gate, but the camera was on the U.S. side of the border, so you could only see the kind of the back of the four people. But it and did look this, a lot like them. Like, I remember, like, did. people were like, that looks so much like them. It's got to be them. Right. And they brought in, like, the family, and, you know, some people were in the family were convinced it was them. Some people were not. The authorities were con- that said it was, like, a 75% chance that this was them, right? So this timestamp video was also recorded on... February 8th around 7 p.m. So this is around the same time that the car was left at the San Isidro Mall, right? So this just kind of further bolsters their view that the, the family drove down to San Isidro, left their car in the mall parking lot, and then crossed the border into Mexico. Yeah. But you don't know why. I mean, why would they do this, right? It doesn't make right. any sense. They didn't tell anybody. So because we have got people that have been reported missing and they may be in Mexico, now you're going to start to see sightings of the family, right? But none of these were confirmed. There was somebody, I think, in El Rosario who reported the birthmark of Joseph Jr., said that he was a server at this restaurant, and he said that Joseph Jr. had a very distinctive birthmark on his forehead, and this person accurately described it. So police went to El Rosario to look for them. They couldn't find them. So there's a lot of you know, information that you probably people probably saw pictures of the family and they saw the birthmark and reporting from that. It may not have been nefarious. It may have just been kind of you want to help. Something. They just want to help. And right. Keep in mind as well. There were no signs of any kind of foul play. Right. So people had no reason to believe anything bad happened. Right. It was just the family left and they left their dogs. They parked their car in San Isidro. And then you have this video that looks like them walking into Mexico. So like what in the world happened, right? There was rampant so, speculation that drugs were involved. Of course. It was crazy. Like, do so, you remember that? I do. I do remember that. There was there was a lot of stuff going on about like, was it maybe like a deal that had business deal that had gone bad and they went away or they were being chased by somebody because of a drug deal gone bad. I mean, there was all kind of speculation, which is what happens when there's no information, right? Like people just kind of want to create a story and find patterns where patterns can't really be found. Everybody's an armchair sleuth at that point. Of course. (laughs) And so the McStay family's relatives felt like it was pretty unlikely that they would go to Mexico because around the border of San Diego and Mexico is not really that safe, especially in 2010. It was very dangerous. (laughs) That was some craziness going on. Yeah. So their family's like, this isn't, they wouldn't do this. This doesn't make any sense because of all the drug wars and everything. And Summer was known to have told everybody she was super scared of that stuff. Yeah. So it, it just, nothing's fitting. Like you have, you, you have what your eyes are telling you, which is that they crossed the border. Then you have what you know about them and nothing's working together. The other thing that was noted was that the family had more than $100,000 in their bank accounts, but there'd been no activity on the account since they disappeared. And Which is crazy. See, if they yeah, were gone so, to Mexico, somebody would have taken some money out. Right. So no, there were no like major withdrawals. They hadn't been had any activity on the account. And so... It seems like if you're going to disappear off the face of the earth, you want to have cash on hand. Right. So the fact that they had $100,000 in their bank account. That's a lot of money. And hadn't touched it. It's a lot of money. And so, additionally, I heard that the family confirmed that Summer's passport was expired. So she clearly... I was just about to say that. Yeah. So Joseph did have a, have a valid passport, 
but it, they, it hadn't been used recently. And Summer's passport was expired and there was no indication that she had applied for a new one. And the children did not have passports and one of the birth certificates for one of the sons was found in the home. So back in the day, I don't know if you've ever been to Mexico, but back in the day, you used to be able to go to Mexico with just a birth certificate. I don't know if this was true just for you children. You could just use a license. You didn't even need a birth certificate. Yeah. Like if it was a child, a birth certificate, yes. But us, I remember going to Mexico numerous, numerous times and not needing anything but my license. Okay. But back See, then, evidently, went... the kids could go, but they couldn't get back into the U.S. without a, a birth certificate. Right. And same with same with Summer with her passport. She could have gotten well, she may have been able to get into Mexico, but she wouldn't have been able to get back into the States. Right. So there it just doesn't things aren't falling into line like you would ex, you would kind of expect when you're trying to put together this story. Right. So. So that's kind of all we know about what happened to the McStays until April 2013. And. That's when the San Diego Sheriff's Department announced that they believe the family voluntarily left for, Me- for Mexico. And they didn't say they were closing the case, but kind of that was the indication, was that they were like, look, this family left voluntarily. We can't do anything more about it, right? Right. They're adults. Not, they took their kids. They picked up and went. That's their choice. We, there's right. nothing we can do. Right. Not the first time San Diego sheriffs have made a grievous error in a very obvious crime scene. But right. But I also heard... Our- that they were sightings in more than just Mexico. Yeah, that, Belize and other places in Honduras. Like there were Haiti, Dominican Republic. That, yeah, there were rumors that like he was like building um like a hideout in Costa Rica or like it's so all crazy. Kind of, like, that is yeah. so crazy. Or that Summer committed the murders and yeah, it's just so much. It was rampant. Just it was craziness. Yeah. So, just a few months after San Diego sheriffs are like, nope, they left voluntarily. We're wiping our hands free of it. November 11th, 2013, an off-road motorcyclist discovered four sets of human remains buried in two shallow graves in the Mojave Desert near Victorville. So this is in San Diego, San Bernardino County, which is two and a half hours northeast of Fallbrook. Okay, can you just speculate for a moment with me as to how this came all about? Like, how do you think this guy did that? He was just like doing a little off-roading and it was like do 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 and rode over the graveside or like how do you think that went down? Like cuz to me I was like how the fuck did he find these guys and then they're buried. It it hasn't been discussed that much how he actually ended up discovering them, but I want to say when I was watching something and this is purely off memory, this is not from something I read when I was doing the research for this. I want to say that he was riding in the sun caught like a reflection or something like the sun shone on a bone fragment and it caught his eye i want to say that that's how it happened but that again that's that's purely from from memory i might not be 100 percent accurate on that so they were shallow enough to where they became somehow over the course of weather and 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 whatnot that the bodies became partially uncovered that's that's what it sounds like but again i would correct us if i'm wrong i'm that's purely off of my memory. I feel like that's kind of how it wasn't like, uh oh, I found four bodies. I think he saw a bone fragment and called it in, and then they found four bodies, right? Yeah. So, but it was two graves, is my understanding that it two was two shell- graves and two so people summer, in each grave. Yeah, so Summer was in one grave with one of the sons, and Joseph was in another grave with the other son. Worst Let's case see. scenario, right? That's absolutely the worst thing that could happen. And I remember right. when they released that information on the news, just being like so sad for that family. And just kind that of outcome baffled happened. at how it completely in the opposite direction. This is like a five hour 
distance that from San Isidro to where the bodies were found. You know what I mean? So like right. it was just so like unexpected that they were going to be found up there. But then so many people came forward and were like, this has got to be the drug cartel. Now we, we have absolute confirmation that the drug cartel did this because why else would they be in a shallow grave and so on and so forth yeah. and the Mexico link and all that kind of stuff. But like, so. what drug cartel is going to murder you and then take you back over the border? Because like yeah. all the speculation was that they crossed the border and then something happened to them. But what mm-hmm. cartel is going to bring you back into the States? Two and a half hours, <laughs> like five hours north of where you already are. Maybe they were bored and they just to bury you in a shallow something grave. To do. <laughs> right? I mean, like, it's, like there's some like some things that like people don't think about, but like, come on, think about that. That doesn't make any sense, right? So yeah. So two days after they were found, so November thirteenth, two thousand thirteen, officials officially identified the remains as the McStays, and the case was reclassified as a homicide. And officials stated they believe the family died from blunt force trauma inside their home. And reportedly, this is because paint was found on some of the clothing when the family's remains were found. So remember that they they were renovating the house. Oh, my God. So it looked like some paint was maybe on their clothing when they were found. So whoever did it killed them and then did a really, really good job of cleaning up. Right. And some of the things I was reading said, like, it looked like maybe they had painted over some of the bloodstains. Oh, my God. Because there was not very much evidence. And lest you think that that's actually a way to get away with, like, committing a crime, there would still be blood evidence. But it doesn't seem like San Diego crossed their T's and dotted their lowercase J's, if you know what I'm saying. They (laughs) didn't just put luminol all over everything. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't sound like they did the best investigation. On November 5th, 2014, San Bernardino County Sheriff arrested Chase Merritt, the co-worker, for the murder of the McStay family because his DNA was found on the steering wheel and gear shift of the car that was found down in San Isidro. Oh, boy. So they think that he murdered the family with a three-pound sledgehammer that was found in the grave that summer when one of the children were buried in. They think he murdered them with this sledgehammer drove their car down to San Isidro and I don't know how they presume he made it back up to Fallbrook but that he buried them up in the Mojave Desert because his sister lived up in Victorville so he was familiar with the area his phone pinged off of the area during the days or weeks after yeah so but he but they do think that he actually is the one who drove the car down to San Isidro and left it there as like a countermeasure and I mean clearly it worked for a while like everybody was just like they went to Mexico how the so, hell did he overpower four people with a sledgehammer alone? He must have had a gun, too, or something to be able to I hold don't them know. captive. I don't know. I mean, unless he killed Joseph first, you know? Because Joseph really is going to be your biggest threat when it comes to, like, fighting back. Right, but so, a sledgehammer, that's an unwieldy kind of a tool. You know what I mean? It's not, it's yeah. not like, it's something you could easily use unless right. you were very strong and, like, you know, used to... Which right. this guy quite possibly was, but I mean, he built. He was one of the people who actually manufactured and built these these fountains. So maybe he. I mean, he was a pretty big dude. So maybe I don't know, but but that's you know, in in a case they're not required to provide their murder weapon or the motive or anything like that. But that but because it was buried with them, that's kind of what they think, right? So right. Apparently, Merritt had a very severe gambling problem and had written himself checks for more than twenty thousand dollars from the business account in the days after the family disappeared, which he immediately went to the casinos and gambled away. 
So this, let's just also note that this was not the same as the $100,000 bank account. I think that was their personal account, correct? Correct. And that yeah. the, the business account was separate. Correct. So the $20,000 was from the business account. The $100,000 was not touched at all. And the other thing that the prosecutor said is that he had recently learned Joseph was going to cut him out of the business. So this is all motive, right? So he was in severe debt. He was stealing money and he was about to be cut out of his business. So... Chase Merritt's trial was delayed a number of times. Apparently, he requested multiple times to represent himself. And being Never the lawyer of the group, I was going <laughs> to say, if you could provide some <laughs> advice on whether or not you should do that. Uh, so. It's my understanding, too, that this dude had a super long criminal record. Like, he wasn't, like, yeah. squeaky clean whatsoever. Yeah, he had spent time in prison for stealing, I mean, basically for stealing money um, in the tens of thousands of dollars. So... Burglary and receiving stolen property. This guy had a number right. of fel- felony convictions, so he was hardcore. Right. He wasn't just some little right interesting, nice Joe Blow. He also got a couple of delays because he claimed he was in heart failure, but investigators also at one point like saw him jumping over a fence. So yeah. it was kind of like Not. when, when uh, <laughs> Joseph D'Angelo, when they're, when he comes in in a wheelchair, and then like, right. Paul Holes is like, we saw him like riding a motorcycle. Come on, man. So... His trial finally commenced on January 7th of 2019, so just a little over a year ago. And there is another wrinkle here that we have not discussed yet. So in addition to the checks that Chase Merritt wrote to himself, the week after the family disappeared, thousands of dollars were being transferred from the business account. Do you remember hearing about this? Yeah. So a web designer named Dan Cavanaugh admitted to transferring the money. But he claims that the money went to vendors and manufacturers and that he was working with Joseph's brother and mother trying to keep the business afloat during the early days of the disappearance. He also says that he was in Hawaii surfing. He was there for like six weeks surfing during the time of the murder. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. it does look like he was it does look like he was out of state. But I haven't seen anything that says that this money actually did go to vendors. Like, that's just what he's I telling he took people advantage in of interviews. Like, I mean, the family's, it, you know what I mean? Like, the guy, the boss is gone. Yeah. And you have access to the accounts. Why not transfer a couple thousand thousand bucks for your right? Hawaii surfing vacation? I mean, I, he may shady. not have done that, but. Super shady. And then, That like, was another wrinkle. The, all the mysterious background info about Merritt, too. About him, like, saying he passed a polygraph and he had no idea what right. happened. And. He was like, going to obviously write a book. he hadn't right, and he was alleging right. that like Joseph had a mysterious ailment mm-hmm. that he didn't tell anybody about, and that summer, and that summer had, had anger, anger management issues. Yeah, <laughs> it's like really. Yeah, he had he had some crazy. Like he said at one point he was going to write a book, and that they would be able to find from his notes information about who actually killed them or something like that. It was like basically you're just like giving police all the arrows to point at you like yeah just so but the other thing about this Dan Kavanaugh kid is that he actually ended up selling the business to two other people in July of 2011 that's so shady he's so Joseph's family yeah Joseph's family said it wasn't his business to sell and I haven't found anything to show like any legal you know follow-up to that like I don't know if they tried to sue for the business I don't know what happened with it but basically it's like this random web designer who didn't work for this company That's he so was, crazy. was in charge of their website was doing all this stuff at the same time that this family has disappeared and they don't know where they are so it's another wrinkle that just kind of added to the whole mystery of this 
this disappearance, right? Well, so, and I think it distracted attention too, in kind of a red herring kind of a way, as well as exactly. Summer's ex-boyfriend Vic Johansson. Yeah. I mean, Didn't everybody was have, off like, on him for the longest or time. Or something, yeah. Oh yeah, he has a like a criminal history, violent criminal record, yeah. and whatnot. And so initially, police thought that he was possibly involved because they said he was obsessed with Summer, right? But, and know. she had also changed her name a couple times. Not like from maiden name to married name. I think at one point her name was Virginia something. Yeah, and then she was that was so crazy. Something. And then, yeah, so just all this stuff that like isn't weird until you go missing. And then it makes it sound very weird. You know what I mean? Super, so, super weird. And like right. really distracts from finding a cut and dry answer to who did this. Exactly. So, like I said, Chase Merritt's trial started on January 7th, and obviously part of his defense was, hey, look at all these other people that had motive. So, I January don't know... 7th last year, folks. Of last year, the yeah, 2019. So, they clearly, this was part of their defense, and I mean, these are other wrinkles. I mean, but, but apparently the evidence was overwhelming, and a San Bernardino County did convict him of murder of the McSafe family on June 10th, 2019. So and he they went actu- through five attorneys to get to that. Yeah. <laughs> five yeah. folks. After trying to represent himself. Yeah. So, crazy. So crazy. So they did find that he murdered the family, and they actually recommended a sentence of death. And during his sentencing trial, which just happened last week, he kind of went off the rails. He accused the prosecutors of framing him, and he said that the judge allowed witnesses to lie during the uh, criminal component of the guilt part of the trial. But... Um, this, you know, didn't sit well with the judge who... No, <laughs> I wouldn't with me either. Yeah. <laughs> I'd throw the book at this so dude. On January 21st of 2010, so this was just three days ago that we were, from when we're recording this, Chase Merritt was actually sentenced to death for this family, so... Which, he'll just sit on death row for the rest of his I life. Say, because whether or not that's <laughs> going to happen is one thing, because Gavin Newsom has declared a moratorium on the death penalty in California, which I agree with, but that was the sentence that was passed down, and I guess that's a good countermeasure right because then he, it's not like he can be paroled with the death sentence you, you know he might be com- commuted to life in prison but it'll yeah. be life without it won't be like they tried to throw everything that they could against the wall to see if anything would yeah. stick i mean they tried to get the business and accounting records declared inadmissible because they were hearsay which was obviously denied i mean they were a major component of the trial as well because it right. showed the incentive this dude had because he gained financially but he was writing himself checks how is that hearsay right and then there's also um evidence put out there and stories that he tortured the family as well as just killing them which why would he do that i I just i'm I'm perplexed as to that part of it as well right if it's just if it's only financially motivated why i mean why Especially with a three and a four year old. I mean, I just, just feel like there's other there's other stuff that that was going on there. There had to have been. It couldn't have just been him wanting the money and killing four people because he wants. I mean, it just it's too crazy. Like the whole thing is just so far fetched that it's just strictly I wanted to take the money from this business and I killed right. four people because of it. Right. It's more than a business relationship gone sour. There had to have been some other component. Yeah. There, don't you think? Yeah. Oh yeah. Of course. I just I, I don't. I mean. It, this guy, had, he did not have any violent convictions, right, prior to this? No, just burglary and receiving yeah. stolen property. 
but I, I just, I don't know. I just, it, it's so, it's so awful, but I remember being so perplexed by this case because I've talked about this before. Some of my favorite cases, the ones that grab me the most are disappearances. Yeah. And because it's because of the unknown and you get the speculation of all of this stuff. Maybe they were like spies. Maybe it was, they were involved in drug cartels, all of this stuff because you don't know the answer and then you find the answer and it's just this horrible horrible thing that it's they unbelievable buried. yeah they were yeah. gone for three years yeah three years anything yeah i mean san diego had closed the case essentially you know if this motorcyclist hadn't stumbled upon this i mean who knows yeah you know I, I have no idea. I mean, and, and I'm sure that there are literally hundreds and hundreds of cases out there that didn't have this lucky sure. f- finding of the bodies. And there are bodies buried out in the desert because, I mean, there are millions of acres of desert around the world where bodies are disposed of every day. Oh, my gosh. I mean, inland California is it's vast. Like, you don't realize it's vast. Until you and get on the road you... and drive out through there and you just can't see anything for miles yeah, you drive through Calexico and you're like, oh boy, <laughs> this is so. It would be bleak. super easy if you buried a body deep enough that no one would yeah. ever find it. Yeah, and we're not encouraging anyone to go bury a body out there. <laughs> no, please, please don't go bury any bodies out in the desert, folks. <laughs> no, this is not an advertisement for any kind of violent crime. But yeah, it's just I remember this case like I was just so because I remember when they arrested him and I remember when they found the bodies and it was so wild just crazy that it would be the business partner yeah yeah i mean and how often does it end up being the business partner like, I mean, not so that often. often not that oh, often. i was gonna say it's so often no, no. well uh, he was on the radar pretty soon pretty early on too because of his criminal record obviously that was one thing they looked at right but you know some i think there was somebody some business associate who was like you need to look at him and anybody he's associated with somebody had to have seen those checks the checks yeah. that he cashed. Like, that had to have been a huge red flag immediately. You know, and it's, if there was anybody involved, I mean, who... How, do we know that it wasn't this this web designer guy? You know what I mean? Like, I'm not accusing him, but, like, I don't... What happened to that money? Maybe it's somewhere out there there's a story about where they were able to find that money, but I haven't I seen it. I know, but I have, a, I have a feeling that if that dude was really involved, that Chase Merritt would have folded and, like, gotten a plea deal to get to fair oh, that that's guy probably out. True. Like, he's so shady, he would have been like, no, give me 10 years yeah. less or get the death penalty off the table if I give you this dude's name. You know what I mean? That's probably true. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah. Because he seems like the kind of dude that would turn on you, like, immediately. Obviously, he did or, that with his business partner, so... Yeah, or just straight up kill him. I mean, yeah. you know. Oh, yeah. Because he's the other witness. And how do we know. know that he didn't? How do we know that there wasn't somebody else involved and Merritt took care of him, too? Right. It's crazy. Yeah. It is crazy. Anyway. It's such a sad um, story. Very, very sad case. And four people needlessly lost their lives over their association with this dude. And I have to wonder if... Um, the McStay family did any kind of criminal background check on this guy before they partnered with him. Yeah, I don't know. It's That's one of those things, that's one of those jobs, you know, where it, it seems like a very skilled job to be able to do something like that. So I don't know what your options are, like, for employment. If you're looking to hire employees who can do that, I don't know how many people can do that, do the kind of work that he did, because it was very artistic. But this you is know, a business so, partner. This is more than just an associate that you have working at your company. Yeah, this is a business true. partner. So you would think yeah. that before you 
go into a partnership with an individual that you would do a little bit of background checking to make sure you're not hiring some shady, crazy person that's going to run off of all your yeah. money. I mean, that's yeah, just me. That's true. No, um, that, I mean, that's a good point. It's who, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. But then again, I mean, maybe he came very highly regarded from somebody who knew somebody else and that's, they basically didn't, they were lulled into kind of a false sense of confidence and right. didn't do anything that they needed to do to, to kind of background check this guy before they hired him right. in the business. So like maybe they had a personal relationship prior to starting the business together. And so he thought, I can trust this guy. You know what I mean? Maybe it wasn't like they just came to be partners. It was like they knew each other and they were like, let's start this business. I don't know. I don't know the circumstances. And maybe he did know about the guy's criminal background and was like, hey, I'm going to give this guy a chance. You know, he's mm-hmm. reformed. He's paid his debt to society. Let's give this guy a chance. He's a talented worker. He's going to do good, blah, blah 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 and you know maybe it was this altruistic kind of goal that just ended up turning out very very badly well and like we said he didn't have any violent convictions yeah you know so maybe that factored into it too maybe he knew about it and thought that he doesn't have any violent convictions therefore i'm going to give him another chance i don't know i guess the only person that knows that is mcstay and him and he's the only one that's saying anything and he ain't saying a word now Yep. So he is in San Quentin until probably until he dies on death row. So I'm glad hopefully, that he that, hopefully that'll be soon. Can't do anything. Right. <laughs> yeah. And he claims to be in heart failure. So bye. <laughs> um, I think we'll go ahead and wrap the episode up unless you have anything else you yeah. want to add. Nope. That's it. Sorry if it was a rough go. It was my first episode back in a long time. Oh, yeah. We'll cut you, we'll cut you some slack. <laughs> <laughs> but this is the point in the podcast where we say so long, farewell. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our little podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, go ahead and shoot us an email at the bfdpodcast at gmail.com. We'll put that into show notes and social media. We are at the BFD podcast on both Twitter and Instagram. And I'm back onto the Twitter too. Yay. <laughs> so if you want to interact with, with the whole world, <laughs> if you want to interact with us, like shoot us a DM, like tweet at us and we'll get on that. I was doing it a little bit while Darcy was gone, but I kind of slacked off on it a little bit as well. So please interact with us. We will be back on top of it this new year. And please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your best life. Welcome back, Darcy. Bye. Bye, guys. <laughs>